Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. When I Google myself, I get George Carlin, and I get you know, a certain TV star named Romano. Uh, so anyway, thank you. It's as we said, it's just a small group, but a quality group. I can tell just looking at you. Um, well, uh, as you can see, uh, I have some stick here to do. Like this shirt, David, you know this. This this, this was solid white this morning, right? And so so uh, somehow, like people who start looking like their dogs, I'm beginning to look like my book. Um, but when I when I did see this at at Orvis, I thought I had to buy it. So here it is. Um, so this is a book I I've been working on for <laughs> at least ten years uh, and gathering string for my whole life, I guess. Um, it's it's nice. To you to say it, it, it's getting some buzz. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that apparently it will be getting some some buzz um, in, a, in the next few weeks from um, you know major review places. But we've had an interesting reaction so, so far. Um, as you'll see when I read a little bit at the beginning, it's a kind of counter uh, cliche thesis, right? Most people think of the U.S. as a very intellectual culture, and I'm arguing you know the the opposite. Um, so what I think I'll do is I'll, I'll read a bit from the introduction, give you a, a, a taste of the style, which has already been called J. June by at least one uh, reviewer. But it's not an academic style, that's for sure. Um, uh, I, I just have to tell you this story, because this is the most shocking reaction uh, to the book I've had so far. When I was leaving uh, a very overpriced hotel today in San Francisco called the Mark Hopkins Hotel, uh, be aware, $350 dollars a night and no Wi-Fi and not even a computer in the lobby not my not, not my type of place in any case um, the the bellman saw my little bag which says Salon du Livre it's a, a bag I've had from a French book fair for a long time started to ask me are you a writer I told him yes actually I'm on an author tour what's your book America the philosophical and he said oh I'm a member of the Mechanics Institute library which is where I spoke last night and I was looking at your book yesterday and in, in a bookstore too. I said, did you buy it? He said, honestly, no, it, it didn't, I swear to God, he said, it didn't seem philosophical enough. <laughs> he said, I'm a, really, I'm a real fanatic about philosophy. I said, well, so am I, sir. I just wrote a book, you know, 672-page book, and I assure you, if you dig deep, there's really serious philosophy in there. So we exchanged cards, and he's promised to buy it and to write me about it, but <clears throat> the one thing I did not expect was that, like a bell guy bringing, you know, my, my stuff to the, the car would basically not be a customer, despite being a philosophy fanatic, because I hadn't lived up to his standards of philosophy. But, you know, tours are full of surprises. So here, here's the beginning. 
America the philosophical? It sounds like Canada the exhibitionist, or France the unassuming. A mental miscue, a delusional academic tick, a dead on arrival concept, emitting gases of pure intellectual wish fulfillment. Everyone knows that Americans don't take philosophy seriously, don't know much about it, don't pay any attention to it, and couldn't name a contemporary academic philosopher if their passports depended on it. As historian Richard Hofstadter dryly observed in his Pulitzer Prize winning Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, 1963, quote, in the United States the play of the mind is perhaps the only form of play that is not looked upon with the most tender indulgence. But if the title phenomenon of Hofstadter's classic indeed boasts, in his view, a long historical background, the peculiar attitude directed at philosophy in America is more quizzical than hostile, closer to good-humored wariness than contempt. Philosophy doesn't threaten or bother the practical on-the-go American. The American middle manager, confronted with a devoted philosophy type, is most likely to yank out the old cliché. What are you going to do? Open a philosophy store? And leave it at that. If, of course, the information has been accurately downloaded. Tell your seatmate on a flight that you're in philosophy, and that's the lingo that a lot of people in philosophy use, I'm in philosophy. And the reply is likely to be, oh, that's great, my, my niece is in psychology too. The infrequent philosophy blips on America's media screens suggest that philosophy doesn't register on the American psyche with the gravitas professors in the field deem warranted. When a blip does occur, it drives that impression only deeper. Page six of the New York Post, the ongoing ground zero of American gossip, even in the age of TMZ. Now, I think in Los Angeles, I probably don't have to explain TMZ. In Princeton, at this point, somebody called out, what's TMZ? Uh, a kind of trashy celebrity website. What's huh. the New York Post? What, what? Oh, yeah, okay, you see? We're going to have to do, like, philosophy in America for beginners. All right. Uh, um, Anyway, page six of the New York Post once featured Lauren Hutton, the nation's eternal fashion model, anointing Camille Paglia as, quote, the greatest living American philosopher. High praise for someone another newspaper usually introduces with the phrase pro-porn feminist. And now I give a few examples of the way the media uh, deals with philosophy in America. Uh, in tiny New York Mills, Minnesota, the town's regional cultural center draws national press every year with its annual Great American Think-Off. It's a philosophy contest, so egalitarian that a finalist one year, Philip Torsrud, couldn't make the final debate on which does society value more, money or morality. Something about a prior commitment in the Wisconsin correctional system, an inconvenient conviction for murder. When a wrestler named Nick Baines declared, after entering the University of Northern Iowa, that he planned to become a professor of philosophy, the Des Moines Register judged him an oddity to be closely watched by locals. Uh, philosophers in the area, historically wiser, noted that Plato, ne Aristocles, born Aristocles, actually pulled a similar career move. He adopted his better known name, Plato, which meant broad shoulders, while competing in the Isthmian Games. And when the University of Chicago, in October, 2011, I, I threw this in, you know, you, you always throw in something from the last year to convince your, your editor that you're still reporting, so October 2011. When the University of Chicago in October 2011 simultaneously hosted in the same building a conference on philosophical giant Bernard Williams and another on the hit reality show Jersey Shore, guess which one got the front page New York Times coverage? 
Signaling the American media mindset, it seems, was a publicity release from a New York publishing house, hyping a two-book deal with Dennis Rodman, America's faded, body-pierced, outre, cross-dressing, ex-basketball bad boy. It offered a sweeping historical perspective on its previously unheralded thinker in ascending typeface. And my publisher, after about four attempts, actually got this right, uh, imitating the press release. It was quite stunning. It was Socrates, Confucius, Chopra, Rodman, you know, as if he was uh, the kind of re rebirth of Aristotle. Um, does America take philosophy seriously? One might as well ask whether America takes monarchy seriously. Joking about philosophy in the United States, or just ignoring it, comes with the territory, like learning the Pledge of Allegiance. Hard-boiled, concrete-minded descendants of everyone from the pilgrims to the slaves to the boat people, we pick it up along the way, like mistrusting politicians, refinancing mortgages, or choosing whiz-bang smartphones. It's the way we're supposed to think about a discipline, described by journalist Ambrose Bierce, who promptly disappeared into the desert, as, quote, a route of many roads leading from nowhere to nothing, and by historian Henry Adams as a field that offers, quote, unintelligible answers to insoluble problems. Tocqueville, that touchstone for all synoptic thinking about America, thought the peculiar attitude of its residents toward philosophy so obvious that he began the second volume of Democracy in America by noting it, quote, I think that in no country in the civilized world is less attention paid to philosophy than in the United States. The Americans have no philosophical school of their own, and they care but little for all the schools into which Europe is divided, the very names of which are scarcely known to them. Even Tocqueville, however, nodded. For all his general insight into the fledgling United States, he, like many French intellectuals, saw American thought through the prism of European customs and assumptions. The conclusion he drew from that putative intellectual state of affairs, that, quote, in most of the operations of the mind, each American appeals only to the individual effort of his own understanding, was false then and is even more false now. His misstep came in using the word only. He should have written that each American also appeals to the individual effort of his own understanding. And here I would say, as an old newspaper uh, guy, um, we talk about nut graphs um, that give you the sort of core of what an article is arguing. I'd say this next graph is more or less the nut graph of my introduction. For the surprising little secret of our ardently capitalist, famously materialist, heavily iPodded, iPadded, and iPhone society is that America in the early 21st century towers as the most philosophical culture in the history of the world, an unprecedented marketplace of truth and argument that far surpasses ancient Greece, Cartesian France, 19th century Germany, or any other place one can name over the past three millennia. The next sentence would be my most compact attempt to give some of the reasons for this. The openness of its dialogue, the quantity of its arguments, the diversity of its viewpoints, the cockiness with which its citizens express their opinions, the vastness of its First Amendment freedoms, the intensity of its hunt for evidence and information, the widespread rejection of truths imposed by authority or tradition alone, the resistance to false claims of justification and legitimacy, and the embrace of net communication with an alacrity that intimidates the world, all corroborate that fact. 
Mistaking American ribbing of philosophy for what the British call rubbishing for evidence of a non-philosophical culture is only one of the errors traditionally committed by intellectuals in understanding the United States. Even the best philosophical societies, after all, stick it to philosophy once in a while, as Aristophanes caricatured Socrates and his Athenian logic choppers in the clouds. American irreverence, far from posing a threat to philosophical activity, fuels and incarnates it. And let me pull off the text to give an example. Uh, somebody may have seen this today. I just saw a headline. I haven't read the story, but somebody interrupted an Obama speech, I think, in the last 24 hours, uh, a press person. But it reminded me of that incident a few years ago. You'll, you'll probably recall when a congressman yelled out, you lie, during the State of the Union address. And the punditocracy immediately started bemoaning, you know, the decline and collapse of American deliberative process and so on. Well, I'm not claiming that yelling you lie is philosophical, but I actually think that sort of attitude, that sort of incident helps America the philosophical. I think it loosens up the culture. I think it exhibits the um, opposition to authority and the sort of courage in the face of authority, even in, you know, the, the, the most proper circumstances. That that uh, has a lot to do with why I think we are a very philosophical society. So co coming back to the text, has the talk show declined from Socrates to Bill O'Reilly and John Stewart? Maybe. But mixing entertainment and argument isn't why. Are those inside the beltway cable babble shows really talk over shows? Sure, but read some of Plato's dialogues and you'll see Socrates also stepping on the lines of other speakers. In fact, the proliferation and popularity of American radio and television talk stars, from Howard Stern or Don Imus, recidivist, to Charlie Rose, Oprah Winfrey, Stephen Colbert, and Stewart, bears a resemblance, albeit imperfect, to the rise of influential celebrity rhetoricians in ancient Greece. Even if today's talkers seek more to persuade and entertain and provide for forums than to teach others the arts of persuasion. Was the Christian Science Monitor kidding when it marked the end of Oprah's 25 years of TV talk in May 2011 with an article headlined, quote, Oprah Winfrey, the greatest existential philosopher ever? Was that a smirk as it praised her teaching that the human project is, quote, always up for editing, elevation, and enlightenment? It seemed not. And in fact, the article was not irreverent. Um, the story of philosophy in America is not a short subject about a narrow tributary of high Judeo-Christian culture, once commonly restricted to the university and priesthood, that failed to empty into the great river of American thought. When seen properly in whole, at least by me, philosophy in the USA is more like a big budget Transformers type special effects movie, the big muddy that flooded America. But it's important to refine and make plain the scope of this metaphorical claim. To exalt America as the world's philosophical culture par excellence is not just to argue that American philosophers have occasionally swayed everyday society, sometimes in a trickle-down manner, sometimes directly. We've always known that, though the examples bear repeating. Just as we acknowledge that outside America, the work and logic of philosophers such as England's Bertrand Russell and Germany's Gottlieb Frege aided the development of the computer, 
<coughs> and artificial intelligence, and that Albert Einstein declared his rejection of absolute time was, quote, decisively furthered by the reading of David Hume's and Ernest Mach's philosophical writings. We know that Ralph Waldo Emerson spurred American intellectual independence, and John Dewey co-founded the American Civil Liberties Union with huge consequences for our tradition of freedom of speech. We recognize that William James catalyzed psychology into a full-fledged discipline, and that Alain Locke helped spark the Harlem Renaissance that began the explosion of black artistic self-expression in the 20th century. Closer to the present, we're familiar with how even such important scientific accomplishments as the dendril program that helps chemists identify the structure of molecules developed by University of Pittsburgh computer scientist Bruce Buchanan from his philosophical work at Michigan State can be credited to the tribe of philosophers. Outside natural science, the theory of justice of John Rawls, the economics accented jurisprudence of Richard Posner, the end of art history musings of esthetician and critic Arthur affect politics, judicial reasoning, and curatorial practice, respectively. America the philosophical, however, means more than that. And here I'll begin skipping a, a, a little bit. Um, what I do essentially in the introduction is to ultimately build a strong case for America the unphilosophical, then come back to my thesis a bit, and then the rest of the book is an attempt to overcome that, that cliche. So I'll give you a taste of that sort of um, tour here. Um, uh, I say in favor of America the, America the philosophical, it's similarly more than the spread of so-called applied ethics, which over the past 30 years has seen American philosophers become business ethicists, medical ethicists, military ethicists, and animal ethicists, sometimes taking jobs in corporations, hospitals, service academies, prisons, and other institutions to bring their thinking to the problems of those fields. It is more than the effort of individual academic philosophers such as gay social critic Richard Moore or complicated feminist figures such as Martha Nussbaum to draw attention to terrain traditionally bypassed by the discipline's establishment and to extend their philosophical work to activism on issues as Nussbaum has done in regard to poor women in India. Finally, America the Philosophical is more than a phenomenon it encompasses, but to which it cannot be reduced. The transformation by which America, once urged by Emerson to stand on its own intellectual feet, has become a net exporter rather than importer of professional academic philosophy. An intellectual bank whose bottom line is so much in the black that major thinkers overseas, such as Australian ethicist Peter Singer, head here to shine in a bigger arena. Now, honesty compels me to say they also get paid three times as much, usually when they come over here, but that's part of the backstory. Um, the development is not new. As far back as the mid-1980s, The Economist observed that, quote, British philosophy now consists of sophisticated commentary on the bright ideas of Americans. In Germany, leading philosophers such as Jürgen Habermas direct their theorizing toward ideas developed by the American pragmatists. And the 21st century has seen the founding of a John Dewey Institute at a German university. In France, Jacques Bouveret, best known for his maverick promotion of Anglo-American analytic philosophy in the land of sometimes murky masters of thought, was elected to the prestigious philosophy chair at the Collège de France. In Scandinavia, in Southeast Asia, in South America, professors evoked the names of modern American luminaries using the field's usual last name shorthand, Rorty, Danto, Quine, Rawls, Nussbaum, as they once did those of the French, English, and, and Germans. 
Now skip a little bit to uh, a kind of intro to the negative case of America the Unphilosophical. This is not an easy picture to accept, either within our borders or without. To promote America at home as the world's preeminent philosophical culture is to clash with almost every cliche of American intellectual history, including Tocqueville's and Hofstadter's. To vaunt it overseas is not only revisionary, but offensive, certain to be received as one more example of American cultural jingoism and imperialism, the cerebral equivalent of trying to dominate the film market in France and Japan, which we do, uh, bully countries into a coalition of the willing, or impose our notions of governance on China. Moreover, both here and abroad, it appears to ignore significant evidence for the traditional image of America the unphilosophical, whose shadings and subtexts embedded in most domestic handlings of philosophy appear to seal our local sense of philosophy's unimportance. Consider some evidence, then, for the conventional view of America the unphilosophical. <clears throat> and here I'll skip about a bit, but I talk about politics, I talk about education, I talk about literature, movies, and ways in which America is less philosophical. This is just a little taste of what is a very, I, I, I must confess, journalistic and concrete style of pushing facts at the reader in the introduction. Elsewhere in the world, by contrast, philosophers more directly influence and enter politics, sometimes dominating it. In the Czech Republic, originally founded by philosopher Tomas Masaryk, people revered their, philosophy, their philosopher president, Václav Havel, even when they opposed his idealistic vision. In Italy, <clears throat> philosopher Massimo Cacciari, twice the mayor of Venice, looms large on the political scene. And philosopher, novelist, and journalist Umberto Eco serves as cultural touchstone of the nation. Now we know where the blurb came from. Okay. <clears throat> In England, philosopher Roger Scruton, who played consultant and courtier to Margaret Thatcher, still loudly voices Tory concerns. In France, the likes of Bernard-Henri Lévy, Alain Finkelkraut, and Alain Badeau follow in the activist and media provocateur footsteps of Sartre and Foucault, while Luc Ferry, once a voice of 1968 protest, ended up running the Ministry of Culture. In Peru, the Shining Path terrorists, founded by philosophy lecturer Abimael Guzman, amazingly enough, while he was on leave from his department, so, you know, beware of giving people leaves, almost brought Peru to its knees. In Cuba, a fading Fidel Castro quotes Plato in his autobiography, and Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, visiting Havana for chemo sessions, announces that he's borrowed Fidel's copy of Thus Spake Zarathustra to read. So I, I lay out a lot of this and keep asking, you know, is America more philosophical than these lands? So after many, many examples, I do a kind of um, twist back, um, and I begin um, to talk about America, uh, the philosophical, in a positive way, but not before one last sort of example of why maybe my thesis is wrong, and that is the incredible genre of books that attack um, the intellectuality of American culture. <clears throat> so I'll give you a little taste of that. Finally, the views of some of our own intellectuals and authors threaten to put the last nail in the coffin of America the philosophical. Richard Feynman, the feisty Nobel laureate in physics, regularly attacked philosophy as, quote, low-level baloney, unquote, and derided philosophers for always, quote, making stupid remarks, unquote, about science. Books trumpeting the low intellectual quality of American culture now constitute a genre of their own. In Idiot America, 
colon, How Stupidity Became a Virtue in the Land of the Free, magazine writer Charles Pierce, not to be confused with Charles Peirce, argued that we live in the land of his title, quote, the America of the medicine wagon and the tent revival, the America of the juke joint and the gambling den, that we Americans remain, quote, the best country ever in which to peddle complete public lunacy. In Unscientific America, How Scientific Illiteracy Threatens Our Future, authors Chris Mooney and Cheryl Kirschenbaum warn that America is, quote, home to a populace that, to an alarming extent, ignores scientific advances or outright rejects scientific principles, as well as a culture that, quote, all too often questions the value of intellect and even glorifies dumbness. So I then go on and I, I, I talk about a book uh, just a few years old by Susan Jacoby, The Age of American Unreason. Uh, I give her argument, I come back to it, <clears throat> and I end up here. Um, might the only philosophical books right for Americans be Tom Morris's Philosophy for Dummies or Jay Stevenson's The Complete Idiot's Guide to Philosophy? How can America the Philosophical make sense? It does, I submit, if one emulates what philosophers ideally do, subject preconceptions to ongoing analysis and use one's imagination. The traditional cliches get it wrong. Examples that run counter to the vision of this book, such as some of the ones above, prop up the cliches because they imply a musty view of philosophy. They depend too much on activities Christian philosophy according to antiquated or academic criteria and pay too little mind to what honest intellectuals increasingly recognize as philosophy today. For whether one prefers the view of Habermas, Germany's foremost philosopher, that truth issues only from deliberation conducted under maximum conditions of openness and freedom, or the view of Rorty, and this, this clause normally irritates uh, some philosophers in, uh, in the audience, America's most important recent philosopher, at least according to, to me, that better conceptual vocabularies rather than firmer truths should be our aim, or South African expatriate John McDowell's belief, John McDowell is a very distinguished and, and um, high status philosopher in academic philosophy, South African expatriate John McDowell's belief that a proper relationship between the world and language can yet be articulated if painstaking analysis continues to be done. It's plain that America's philosophical landscape, pluralistic, quantitatively huge, all potential criticisms available, provides a more conducive arena or agora than any other. If we take the best contemporary thinkers at their word and think of philosophy as an ever-expanding practice of persuasion, rather than a cut-and-dried discipline that hunts down eternal verities and comes pushpin for internal consumption, America the Philosophical, a far larger entity than the roughly 11,000 members of the American Philosophical Association, not only looks more likely, but plainly outstrips any rival as the paramount philosophical culture. And I, I like this next sentence, even though it's been mocked in a few reviews. So, in the early years of the 21st century, America is to philosophy what Italy is to art or Norway to skiing, a perfectly designed environment for the practice. I then cite some evidence on the other side, reasons for thinking that um, America is a philosophical culture, and I want to close <clears throat> and then open up the conversation by just giving you a thumbnail of the seven ways I then come at America, the unphilosophical, in the book um, and, and the vast bulk of the book. 
So the first one um, I describe on, on page 18 as an overview of the official American philosophical tradition as a tale not of argument machines, but of human beings who got things both right and wrong. Again, given my long you know, history in philosophy, I think there's too much of this <clears throat> in academic philosophy, the idea that um, the philosophers of the tradition are really some kind of um, composition of theses. Their lives didn't make a difference to what they believed. Um, their arguments, the kinds of evidence they put forth, the kinds of interlocutors they dealt with um, had nothing to do with their lives. So I give here a kind of history of white male philosophy in America, great white male Ivy League cavalcade, because that's a standard view. I start with Emerson, I come through Peirce and James and Dewey, Santayana, Quine, Nozick, Rorty, Cavell, lots of people who are recognized as philosophers within the discipline, but with a, a biographical spine. <clears throat> Two, a broadly repertorial account of how non-professional philosophers have co-opted many of America's philosophical challenges and issues and how astute cultural criticism recognizes their work as philosophical. So here my gambit, and it is a kind of gambit, is to say, okay, even if you think that philosophy is something done only by white males, here are a gang of white males who are not usually seen as philosophers. They're intellectuals, they're thinkers and so on. Got people like uh, Edward Said, B.F. Skinner, um, and then some more controversial choices like Hugh Hefner or Chris Hitchens. Um, and I make an argument that just as in cultural life and art artistic life, the old idea of the highbrow, middlebrow, and lowbrow has largely collapsed partly as a result of, I would say, the work of Susan Sontag and, and, and others. Um, I think that sort of notion should collapse also in regard to philosophy. Because in a sense, the academic profession's position is that only the very, very rarefied top of literature in the profession is authentic philosophy. Third um, approach, an equally concrete picture of how Former outsiders, African-Americans, women, gays, and Native American thinkers have expanded America's philosophical tent. So this is maybe 150 pages of the book, uh, last week in the Wall Street Journal after the reviewer who I've since learned was the son of the op-ed page editor, a graduate student in history, um, uh, after he gave me credit for rejecting the nonsensical notion that America is an unintellectual culture, because we don't want to think that way as, as conservatives, uh, I, I believe he said. Um, he then said, oh, unfortunately, Mr. Romano then surrenders to identity politics uh, with all these women and blacks and so on. Well, I don't talk about identity politics in the book. I don't really care much about it. I talk about a lot of individual people who happen to be women or blacks or Native Americans who do interesting stuff. Um, and I, by the way, say early in the book that uh, the book is meant to be representative and selective. I, I don't claim this is a comprehensive account of philosophy in the U.S. Publisher wanted to give me a thousand pages. I could have Hmong thinkers, Latino thinkers, you know, Laotian thinkers, Laotian American thinkers. Uh, it's representative. Fourth attack on, on the traditional cliche, a telling chronicle of a wholly fresh and distinctive genre of philosophy in America, cyber philosophy. Now, 
My friend David here knows, having worked as a book person in newspapers, you know, we get assaulted with waves and waves of books, um, and we see patterns. I was amazed over my 25 years as the literary person of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and in my 12 years as critic at large of the Chronicle of Higher Education, at this astounding genre of books, serious, philosophical, profound books about the impact of the digital revolution on various areas of life, religion, law, politics, journalism, romance. And it, it got me to the point that as a philosophy professor, I now teach a course called Cyber Philosophy because I find that work so interesting. So in this respect, I think we're way ahead of the rest of the world. French and Germans in particular are catching up. There are a few books out there, but nothing comparable to this very powerful, relevant, timely form of philosophy that our publishing industry is creating. Just a couple of, of more and I'm, I'm done. The fifth part, I like to think of this as one of the fresher parts of the book, is this. A radical explanation of how American philosophy operates under the sign of I Socrates, not Socrates, whose acolyte Plato pulled off one of intellectual history's great public relations triumphs by identifying philosophy with Socrates' approach and denying the term to I Socrates' method. I'm just curious of our, our seven people here. How many of you have ever heard of I Socrates? Socrates with an I in front. Okay, and the rest not. Well, this is, I call the chapter Isocrates colon a man, not a typo. And, and the reason is that we, you know, often when I've talked about Isocrates, oh yeah, I read him as a freshman. You know? and I said, no, you didn't. You know, that's Socrates. And I actually got a one example confirmation of my, my title because last year I did a piece for the American Scholar, which quaintly and in a loving way sends you paper galleys still, like in the old days, and they corrected only one thing passing reference to Isocrates was changed to Socrates. And I had to call say, no, 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 different guy, starved himself at 98, very fascinating, blah, blah, blah. You know? um, so seriously, my feeling was if, if, if I'm going to drive home for serious intellectuals the idea that this is America the philosophical, I, I need to actually argue for a model other than the Socratic one. Isocrates, in shorthand, I would say, was the Richard Rorty of ancient Greece. He's someone who doesn't believe in eternal Verities, who believes that public deliberation is extremely important. He cared about truth. He was not, in his view, a sophist or a, a rhetorician, although that's the, con the traditional way of looking at him. And, you know, probably the key fact, as far as classicists are concerned, is that the word philosophy was in play at that time. Um, it, was, it didn't belong to Socrates. It didn't belong to Plato. I, Socrates used that word for what he did. And I think I think his way of thinking about philosophy is much more in sync with American thought. So the, the two closing uh, approaches. Six, a fresh conceptual vision of why Americans reject supposedly airtight justifications for confidently asserted positions in philosophy and other areas of life, a tale best told through the mighty achievement but ultimate failure of America's most honored modern philosopher, John Rawls. The original form of this chapter was terribly abstract. My editor said he'd jump out the window if he ever had to read it again. Other people would also jump out the window. He wasn't sure he would publish the book if I kept it that way. And actually, he was right. Um, that chapter was very philosophical, but not harmonious with the sort of concrete vitamins of the rest of the book. So I, di I didn't want to give up my strong philosophical thesis in that chapter, which is briefly that 
in an era where we've given up on the notion of truth, what we use as substitutes are legal metaphors like justify, legitimate, warrant, things that sound objective, that sound like they project right answers, even though those answers are no more objective and solid than what we might put forth under the concept of truth. So I looked at John Rawls. He's by far the most prestigious thinker of the last 50 or 60 years in political philosophy. He wrote the traditional you know, giant tome, a theory of justice. Um, he argued at times, syllogistically at times not. And essentially what I say is that even Rawls, like many other thinkers in American life and like politicians, could not get beyond this proposition that you need to agree with me up here with my premises if you're going to agree with me down there. And so I take, uh, in, in probably the most difficult philosophical part of the book, I look at his language on justification. In a sense, his justification of justification. Uh, and I find it wanting. I also try to make it dramatic by talking about one of his chief acolytes, a fellow named Thomas Poga, very interesting philosopher, who at a symposium a few years ago announced, Rawls's theory is a failure. And let me explain why. Fine, the final part of the book is a short epilogue, uh, uh, Obama, philosopher-in-chief. That was enough on its own to get the Wall Street Journal to determine that I am the enemy. Um, and what I'm saying there is not that uh, Obama is Immanuel Kant, um, but that he's the most cosmopolitan philosopher-in-chief president since Woodrow Wilson. Although I've had some FDR fans in previous you know, uh, talks come up. And what I try to do there is, on the one hand, I write a book that is probably in the store. It's an excellent book by the great intellectual historian at Harvard, James Kloppenberg, called Reading Obama. Um, Kloppenberg went back, talked to Obama's teachers at Occidental, talked to the people at Harvard that he worked with, like Larry Tribe. A lot of people don't know that Obama worked for Larry Tribe when he, when he was in law school. Um, uh, his readings in Reinhold Niebuhr and other important thinkers, that's one part of the argument. The other part is an analysis of Obama's speeches, a number of important speeches. I particularly look at the Nobel Prize speech, which I think is an enormously impressive work. You remember, right, he gets the prize in the view of many prematurely, goes off to Scandinavia, um, which is where you have to go to get it, you know, running two wars. Um, and his speech, which did not get the attention I thought it should have, is really a fairly brilliant um, presentation of the view that uh, you do have to use force sometimes in the service of good. Leaving aside whether Iraq and Afghanistan are good examples of that, um, it's a powerful philosophical speech. I myself have always loved the line of the great activist A.J. Mustay. I don't know if uh, you know this line. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. It's kind of beautiful. I get shivers even when I, I say it. But I don't know that it's always true. And, and Obama's speech is, is a very pointed response to that kind of notion. At one of my talks in Berkeley this week, a woman came up afterwards and said, I was A.J. Mustay's assistant when I was an undergraduate. Um, and he wasn't always sure of that line either. He had his doubts, even though he kept fighting for what he believed in. So essentially, that, that brings the book to, to its end. And, and you know, the final lines, I more or less say, you know, if we do have a philosopher-in-chief right now, we're entitled to one, because we're that kind of culture. So I'll stop there and uh, hope we have a bit of conversation. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah.
Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. Um, I just have a question about Isocrates because I have never heard of Isocrates before. And you say that Isocrates rejected certainty, but it seems like Socrates always asked questions like we, the dialogues always start with a question. Mm -hmm. In a way, that Socrates rejects certainty because he's always questioning. So yeah. I, and I know that um, there was a discussion that Socrates may not even exist. There was, you know, people argued that Plato just made him up. Now, it, when you talk about Isocrates, I probably just thought, did you make that up? <laughs> Is Isocrates a real philosopher, a Greek philosopher that I just... I was afraid I wouldn't get through this tour uh, without somebody seeing through the whole roost. <laughs> Uh, after after serious digging in the Plaka neighborhood of uh, of Athens, no, the um, I, I would say that um, there is pretty strong scholarly consensus that Socrates did 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 exist. Um, although it is also a scholarly consensus among classicists that it makes sense to distinguish between Socrates, the historical figure, so much as we know of him, and Plato's Socrates. I mean, actually, you know, most of what we know about Socrates comes from two sources, Xenophon and, and uh, Plato. Plato usually gets the edge in part because it's known that Plato was there at the trial and knew him more directly and so on. But um, there, there continues to be some uncertainty about Socrates. I describe him in this book as the know-it-all who pretended to know nothing. Um, so yeah, the cliche is that you know he, he knows nothing, he doesn't believe in certainty, he uses the dialectical method, um, doesn't know where he's going. I, I argue in the book, and I actually have a separate, in my profiles of various things, Thinkers. I often, I also have um, a profile of I.F. Stone and his own book on Socrates, which is a kind of attack from another direction. But but I see him as much more dogmatic than than skeptical. That he knows where he's going. That he knows how to shut people down in the supposed back and forth that's taking place. Um, while I Socrates is very very sensitive to the idea that things change constantly, and your judgments about concepts and people let alone actions, must be very much of the moment. Um, uh, rather than linked in the Platonic version of Socrates to eternal forms that we all need to recognize. Uh, yeah. Was the genesis of the book a gradually dawning appreciation of what a philosophical country America is, or more of a contrarian's instinct for uh, Contra absurd thesis that gradually grew on you until uh -huh. you believed it yourself. Right. Well, I mean, you know me long enough to know that I have a certain liking for causing trouble. Um, but no, I'd say I, I sincerely believe what I, I, I write in the book. It just kind of grew on me over the years. And I, um, I'm somebody who really has been very deeply steeped in academic philosophy. I was saying, you know, um, at a, a bookstore talk in Princeton, my undergraduate ethics teacher, a man named Gilbert Harmon, came, pleasing me. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected him to come because the book is a little bit of an attack on the establishment 
he's a part of. And in the question and answer uh, session, um, uh, he made reference to something I had told him, which is that I've attended, I think, every Eastern Division meeting. It's a big meeting of philosophers, probably for the last 35 years. So I, I, I know what's going on you know, in the field. And even within the field of philosophy, there's this kind of derision about the rest of the country. So in a way, the, the, the thesis that began to crystallize for me was that America is a great philosophical culture, not because of philosophy professors, but largely in spite of them, even though it includes them. I mean, at another uh, talk recently, someone said to me, but your thesis is ultimately preposterous because it's not measurable. And I said, well, that's, that's not true. First of all, if we threw out everything that was not supposedly measurable in intellectual life, we'd be throwing out a hell of a lot. I said, one of my favorite concepts, it's so favorite that the editor at one point said to me, you know, that's in there about six times. Can we bring that down? Uh, it's Wittgenstein's notion that a blurred concept is still a concept. Well, a lot of our concepts are, are blurry, but we use them and they solve our problems and, and, and so on. Um, so, you know, my, my feeling is that the, the thesis can be defended both through measurement and not through measurement. I mean, if somebody wanted to turn it into a measurable thesis, how many philosophers are there? How many journals are there? How many belief systems can you find articulated representations of in a standard bookstore, say? I think actually my thesis would still be upheld. Um, and just one more kind of slant on that, uh, because I find myself thinking, uh, that's what's wonderful about roaming around talking about your book, thinking about questions that people ask. You know, uh, another person was saying, well, your book is no good because X isn't in it, and Y is not in it, and Z is, Y isn't Lionel Trilling in it, and all these other people. And, you know, my reaction was, um, every person you mention is a further confirmation of my thesis. Um, I'm not saying this is comprehensive. I'm saying we've got philosophers all over the place. Not everybody. Not the delusional person on the street who can't put two sentences together. But a lot. You know, so, yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'll come back to you, Dave. Yeah. Oh, you want, okay. You want to follow up? Oh, oh just, you know, one test of any superlative like America is the most philosophical country in the history of the world is to ask yourself or for me to ask you, what's the second most philosophical country in the history of the world? I like that. Very clever. Yeah. Someone else said to me, have you been around since the beginning of the world? <laughs> And I said, no, but I watch a lot of movies and I read the papers every day, you know. Um, it's a good question. What would be the second? I mean, it, it, it might arguably uh, be England, uh, partly for reasons that, uh, or, or I should say the United Kingdom, um, you know, for reasons that are similar to ours. For instance, one thing I consider tremendously important for us is this wide terrain of freedom of expression. Of course, everybody who's involved, as we've been as journalists or in bookstores, knows it's not perfect. We we have censorship attempts. There has been a progression over American history and so on. But if you really look about at the degree of freedom of expression in this country compared to any place else you can think of, it's astonishing. It's astonishing what can be said, what can be put in a bookstore, what can be said in the face of officials and so on. So uh, the United Kingdom also has that compared to what? Russia, you know, uh, China. Um, what are the in-between cases, I suppose, you know, 
Australia, New Zealand, and so on, um, it, it would be um, you know, a kind of challenge to go down the list of, of countries. But when people have said to me, um, but again, it's a crazy thesis and so on, I say, okay, what's your candidate for the greatest philosophical culture? Um, and the answer I've most frequently gotten at talks is ancient Greece. Yeah. I said, oh, well, that really, I mean, yeah, you know, 98% uh, Greeks, 2% slaves, um, you know, a lot of diversity there, a hell of a lot of Buddhists, a lot, a lot of Jains, you know. Uh, you know, people don't take into account the lack of diversity of some of the philosophical cultures that they think of, you know. Cartesian culture was not very, you know, diverse compared to ours. Um, what can't you find? in the United States when it comes to a belief system. I have to say, when I was driving here, I passed the Church of Scientology. And I didn't know there was actually a street named after Hubbard. I mean, you can explain that to me later. Uh, you were born? All right, well, then you can really explain it. But, um, you know, th this uh, is actually an example of what's possible in this country. Um, so, to me, another one last you know, wrinkle on this, another interesting question that came up for me was, um, someone said, is it a part of your thesis that people change their minds more in America than any place else? And I thought that was an interesting slant on it. And so being the deep thinker, uh, you, you know, I thought about it for 10 seconds. Uh, and my reaction was, well, okay, maybe if you think of people 35 years older, old and older, we don't change our minds that much, um, but neither do people in other cultures. But if I think of children and people, say, from the age of 8 to 25, I find myself coming back to my thesis because uh, I feel the degree of openness in this country and the degree of access to other belief systems enables kids to actually change who they are, to move far away, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of Mormons who are becoming Lubavitchers and Lubavitchers who are becoming, you know, uh, Christians, but uh, you do have these enormous switches from secular to non-secular, um, from Jewish to Buddhist, whatever. That to me is part of what I'm talking about. Um, and it does take place for younger people. So, uh, you had had a question? Yeah, um, I think the most interesting part of Saeed Arda's is thoughts on music and politics. Edward Saeed, you're talking about? Yeah. Right. yeah. And um, I guess the Orientalism from his comparative literature classes would have been where you would see those in his philosophical Is that correct? Well, you're exactly right. That's, a, that's more or less what, what I, I write about um, in, in that section on him. I, I, I mean, I pay most attention. I mention Orientalism, um, but I uh, look at culture and imperialism, uh, you know, which I, this seems to me to have the right arc for what I want to talk about there. And I'm not, um, I'm not just describing in the book. I am assessing. I mean, there are thinkers that I like better than other thinkers, and I make that clear in the book, and it's not a right-left thing. So, you know, for instance, I, I, I attack Noam Chomsky pretty, you know, severely for various reasons. But I was wondering, I'm so sorry I was like but also, um, Danto, what, what was your pithy assessment of Danto, and are there any uh, interesting women thinkers you can tantalize me with in terms of your book? Yeah, well, I have, uh, you know, actually one of the responses to my book by one editor, not my editor, was 
you, you know, your section on women just goes on and on. You have way too many women in the book. I said, oh, really? Well, you know, look at the history of the profession. I think it's an, a nice rebalancing, actually. But I would say of, of the, you know, um, partly to be a little bit jokey, um, even though it's a horrid story, I began with Hypatia. I went all the way back to Hypatia, my section on, on women. Then I come forward and I talk about 19th century things. I talk about ja Jane Addams as being unfairly neglected when they build the pragmatist pantheon. I talk about Margaret Fuller. Um, and you know, someone, uh, uh, someone at a talk the other day said, uh, "Well, you really did a, a, a bad job, an insulting job on Ayn Rand." I read your section on Ayn Rand. I said, "Gee, I thought I was being very nice by letting her in the book, but you know." Um, but so I'm talking about you know people. Martha Nussbaum is in there. Nobody would question that she's a philosopher, but people would question that you know Ayn Rand is. But I have to say. Um, with the possible exception of, of the black philosopher lawyer Anita Allen, who is uh, someone I admire a lot and I think is very brave uh, in the way she's handled her career, I guess the hero among women in the book would be Susan Sontag. Um, I have a very long section probably the longest section on any individual thinker aside from, from Rorty, Rawls, and Isocrates on Sontag. I knew her over the years. We had a bunch of debates. I, I, I represent a debate in the book in which uh, I hope I make myself look bad, um, in which I'm kind of like a dopey graduate student saying to her over and over, but come on, you're really a philosopher who argues and cares about... She said, no, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm in the Nietzsche tradition. Uh, I boil down what I do to artistic clarity and crystalline quality and so on. And it's acceptable for me as a philosopher to say what I think. And it's, it's a very emotional kind of interview. It was a very emotional interview. I was like jelly when I came out of, you know, meeting with her and she's saying, Carlin, Carlin you have to have the courage to say what you believe. Most academics don't. You must have this courage. And, sorry? Her interest was, no, I mean, uh, her, her interest was in, uh, truly was in being a great writer. That's what meant the most to her. It drove her crazy toward the end of her life when she was battling cancer, you know, that people still repeated all the old cliches about, you know, she's a critic, um, she's, you know, uh, campy, you know, she's, um, uh, what did they call her in the ridiculous phrase, the Natalie Wood of American culture at one point, Time Magazine. Yeah. She didn't, you know, she really, uh, uh, there's a famous story of her in Los Angeles, you know, going to visit Thomas Mann as a teenager. I mean, what she really wanted to be was a great European novelist or be seen that way like Thomas Mann or Hermann Brock or, or someone like that. And it's not that she disrespected her criticism and toward the end of her life, you know, she comes back and continues to write about sort of the, you know, the issue of images of war and so on after she's won the National Book Award for, for fiction. You know, um, not for the book she should have won it for, The Volcano Lover, but, but, but for the, the next one. But you no, know, it, it, it drove her crazy. And in, in my, the ending of my part on Sontag, I talk about the obituaries of her and what I feel is the, the, the misunderstanding of her. But she's also an example to me of how you can do philosophy in different forms. You know, you can do it through fiction, I think. You can do it through film. Um, the same criteria apply. You know, is there evidence? Is there a form 
of argument? Is there an openness to alternate conceptions? I do have a rough and ready notion of philosophy. I don't think everything is philosophy. Danto? I would say Danto is the great philosopher of art of his generation and maybe of, of modern American intellectual life. Um, I'm a little biased. I, I studied with him. I've been friendly with him over the years. I've learned a lot, you know, from him. I think his books are are largely brilliant in the way they approach um, modern art. And I, I think if you if you want to understand some of the cliches of modern art, why it seems like anything can be art today, you have to go back the way he does to Duchamp and ready-mades and you know what are the issues that distinguish two identical items, one of which is art and one uh, not, the Warhol, you know, Brillo boxes. You know, the key point with Danto, uh, I would say, he has a line somewhere where he says, interpretation is the lever that lifts an object out of its or of ordinary life into the world of art. And so Arthur does have this, this view that in the absence of interpretation, of an interpreter, of someone treating something as art, its status as art becomes dubious. I mean, you can challenge that, but I think realistically, if you understand, right, what museums do, what curators do, what um, galleries do, it's something you have to think about hard. So yeah, I, I, I could not have a higher opinion. We disagree about philosophy. I'm closer to Rorty than Danto. I don't think he'll like this book. In fact, when my editor said, should we send it to Arthur, he knows Arthur also, I said, he's not that well, he's not gonna like the book, let's wait a little while. I, I, I will eventually send it to him. <laughs> so, yeah. <coughs> Bad timing. Um, is the most philosophical nation in the history of civilization getting more philosophical or less philosophical? Mm-hmm, good question. Um, <laughs> I, I would have to say it's getting more philosophical um, in that I think there's a tremendous boom, uh, even though people bemoan what's happening in the book business. In fact, more stuff is being published than ever before. People are able, able to purvey their work more than ever before. Um, on the educational level, there's actually advances in the teaching of, of philosophy. In other words, I, I make the point in the introduction that other cultures have traditionally done a better job job integrating philosophy into their educational systems. You know, so we have, you know, in France, people going to lycée um, and being required to study philosophy, which is why for the rest of their lives they have this cocktail party sense of philosophy that the press can play on and the press can then pay attention to philosophy. You know, I, I, I knew a fellow named Roger uh, Paul Dois, who was the philosophy editor of Le Monde. Is there a philosophy editor of the LA Times or New York Times? You know, I mean, the concept doesn't make sense in our, you know, journalism. And, you know, there's a growth in things like philosophy for children. There was a, a fellow now gone, unfortunately, named Matthew Lipman, very instrumental in um, trying to spread that in, in, in America and internationally. At, uh, he was at Montclair State in New Jersey. And I know because I, I've paid a lot of attention to UNESCO, which really tracks what goes on around the world in philosophy. And and this is a very powerful movement in the world now in pedagogy for children. Um, there are a lot of places that are teaching philosophy to children who are almost ideal subjects for philosophy because they're brave, they're not set in their ways, they, you know, we, we, we talk about, right, out of the mouth of babes, but it's true. 
Yeah, so I, I do think we are becoming more philosophical, but I, I don't, unless my book makes a minor difference, which I doubt it will, um, I don't think there's a growing appreciation for us as philosophical or becoming more so. So really, one of, one of my modest hopes is just to get the argument going, you know, have people thinking about the subject. Yeah. Uh, what aspects of American society do you think are, are particularly conducive? We talked about pluralism, more or less. Um, but it's a very business-oriented society, very agenda-oriented society. <clears throat> so what do you think? Do you think those things are detrimental to the growth of mm -hmm. practice? Yeah. Or, or you know, to business and business thinking. And over the years, I've come to more frequently read the business section and think about issues there. And I have to say now that I don't think the concern with business um, is antithetical to, to philosophy. Because I think a lot of the issues that come up in business, fairness, equality, uh, distribution of goods and so on um, are are core philosophical you know issues. Um, in, in my chapter on Rawls, one of the reasons that I'm arguing that he's a that his theory ultimately fails is that his so-called difference principle, which roughly you know said that you know um, goods should uh, uh, more or less go to those less well off in certain you know circumstances, did not capture you know the imagination of Americans. We seem still largely comfortable with uh, income equality even when we're very egalitarian in other aspects of our lives. So, you know, for instance, as compared to some other countries, I mean, a rich person can pull up in a limo and cut in on the movie line and get away with it here. You know, there, there are places where you can get away with that kind of thing. We do have this egalitarian feeling that everybody is the same in large parts of life, but it doesn't extend to the idea of one person having zillions and and others, you know, looking for their food in dumpsters. Um, so I, I find increasingly that business is, is helpful in sort of sticking certain philosophically provocative facts in front of people. Um, you know, whether, whether businessmen themselves are made philosophical by what, you know, you, you look at someone like Jamie Demon the, the other day um, in his testimony. He didn't strike me, he was a sort of interesting personality, did not strike me as a particularly philosophical sort about what he's involved in at the moment. Um, so I don't, I don't think it necessarily plays back on the business community. But if you think about Occupy Wall Street, then I think a lot of philosophical thinking about what our society should be was a reaction to what's happening in business and what business has done. Yeah, so, other, yeah. Um, I think how do you create this kind of uh, public discourse, public dialogue of philosophy? And, um, I, I don't think of America as a culture, intellectual culture, 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 culture. Are now are 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 you from another country? Originally. Where? Okay. Because mm -hmm. I've been interested. I've had a lot of uh, comments from from people from other countries saying, "Come on, America." Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. I see the books are on shelves, and I see people are interested. I also have a lot of countrymen, people from my country or, or other uh, mm -hmm. countries. So 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So and the, the artists and all their times when the philosophy discuss philosophy. So for instance, very frustrating for having that. So I'm just wondering how you create that and, and just having philosophers that you mentioned all these names. Is that enough yeah. to have a country that's you know, that he's speaking prose. In a certain way in the book, I'm saying we don't know that we're doing philosophy a lot of the time. So I think what, you, what you're mentioning, which is accurate, you know, often when we look at American life, is that um, some of the standard ways we think of philosophy and talk about, you know, a guy with round glasses like me sitting a, reading a philosophy book at a cafe, that, that would make us feel the culture is philosophical. But we don't do it that way in America, it seems to me. Um, we don't you to the traditional norms of being philosophical but I think when it comes to you know the other criteria I care about um, do we challenge authority do we argue persistently do we put forth evidence in all sorts of aspects of life we are doing philosophy but we're not calling it that because we're still restricting philosophy to sort of old world pictures of it, of, of people reading the books of the great philosophers and arguing in reference to what they say. I mean, I, I have this problem as a professor often with my students from, from other countries uh, where they will repeatedly cite the names of major philosophers as a kind of authority. I say, Leave me alone. I don't want to hear about Derrida. I don't want to hear about Kant. What is your argument, you know, for this position? What's the evidence? Now, what do you think of this counter-argument and so on? In that sense, I'm very much in the strain of what's sometimes called analytic philosophy. Um, you know, it, it's fine if you can bring an argument to me uh, and you properly credit it to probably not Derrida, but to Kant or John Stuart Mill or David Hume or so on, that's great. I don't want you to pretend that you made it up. You know? but, but real philosophy is not just dropping the names of the people in the tradition. And I think when you, you get beyond that conception of it, you begin to see a lot more you know, taking place. I mean, we talked about Edward Said. To me, Edward Said was a very philosophical person in his life, in his activism, in all sorts of ways. But he was a literature professor. And much of what he did, sorry? And music, and, and you know, and a music, you know, critic, and a, a general, you know, uh, intellectual who did not allow himself to be cut off by disciplinary boundaries and so on. So yeah, I, I'm trying a bit to expand the, you know, the notion of philosophy that we have here beyond the actual cavalcade that I give at the beginning of the book. I hope one of the things that a reader comes to at the end is thinking, you know, some of these people that are not so philosophical in my mind are not that different than some of the people who have been accepted by the tradition. I'd say the most, in my experience so far, I've done about eight of the talks at bookstores and so on, and what I get hit with, and I haven't here so far, most often is Hefner. You know, like, you Hefner, a philosopher? Um, that's ridiculous. And 
I don't think it's ridiculous. I mean, for a variety of reasons. Okay, I concede. He likes to screw young blonde women, uh, you know, and will probably die doing that, right? Uh, that's one part of him. But he also, in the 50s and 60s, he wrote a bunch of articles. My understanding is he wrote most of them himself, I mean, with normal editorial, you know, reaction, setting out a civil libertarian view of the world. He, he did a lot of good uh, in regard to civil liberties, bringing, you know, black jazz musicians onto TV, TV and so on. But I think in regard to sexuality, he's had an enormous effect. As someone with an Italian surname, I have noticed the number of Italian men who have rabbits on their rearview mirrors. Um, th that's one form of effect. But he also ended up with a book. There actually is a book that ties together the Playboy philosophy. Um, uh, I think nobody can deny the way attitudes towards sexuality have opened up in this country in the last, say, you know, four or five decades. So when I learned that the Bertrand Russell Society was actually considering him for the Bertrand Russell Award, Bertrand Russell Society is entirely philosophers, I was not surprised. Um, again, he seems to me to be under that that tent. Um, what can I say? Those of you who know Bertrand Russell know that, in fact, the gap between Bertrand Russell and Hugh Hefner when it comes to sex is not that great either. Uh, he was a bit of a randy sort. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, shut me down whenever you need to shut me down. Uh, okay. Yeah. I just want to point out that Hefner, it could be argued that his, his philosophy was about what utilitarian to make, make money. Right. Not necessarily like Russell, where it's purely for the love of philosophizing. Yeah, um, I could, you could say that I, I, based on my reading, and I did spend uh, you know two days interviewing Hefner and talking to him and all that. You know, he's very. I mean, he had a stroke. He came back from it. He's very smart. He's very fast. He's very good at counterexamples. Uh, he knows what he believes. He knows how to argue both sides of the case for, say, you know, marriage versus promiscuity and and so on. Um, there's no doubt he wanted to make money. He wanted to have the life he had and all that. But I, I, I do believe that it was very much interconnected to fundamental beliefs he had about sexuality, and he became more philosophical as he needed to justify the business against all the criticisms that he was getting, you know, in American society. So I, do, I don't, you know, somebody asked me at one of these things that you think Larry Flint's a philosopher, you know, the hustler guy. I said, based on everything I know about Larry Flint, no. I mean, there's a big difference in the degree of articulation of philosophical beliefs about sexuality and, and so on. Um, so that was, is there one last? Yeah. Um, well, I guess one thing, I mean, I perceive, I see so much of the California girl in her writings, and I knew she spent time in the Valley. Do you think California is the most philosophical state? <laughs> right, right. The most philosophical state in the Union. California the philosophical, my next book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it is a uh, you know pretty philosophical place, and and uh, you know I, I took out a part in Alan Watts, for instance, that I would have liked to, you know, uh, have in there. Um, I, I mean, you guys know better than I do uh, what California is now, but certainly in the the mythos of America, California was seen as a place where you could break boundaries and have new beliefs and change your life and so on. So uh, I would have to turn the tables on you guys and say. Tell me, is my next book California the philosophical or is it Nevada the philosophical? Rhode Island the philosophical? I have a feeling that my, my publisher has had about enough with this title, but you know. Anyway, huh? I, I don't. 
I don't. Um, I think there will be an, I, I mean, there's actually a part, I mentioned this notion about uh, legal metaphors, which is something I've really thought about a lot, and I, I have about 100 pages about this that I took out because the publisher felt it was just too philosophical, too, yeah, well, you know, too, too much for an academic press. So, and, and my title was it The Illegality of Philosophy. And I'm thinking of doing a short book called The Illegality of Philosophy, maybe with Princeton or Chicago or so on, where I would bring all this research I did on, on the development of legal metaphors going back to Thomas Hobbes to modern philosophical usage, because you actually can trace a development in which it takes on this substitute version of truth notion that I think I see in our our language. Sorry. Oh, thank you. We like you. <laughs> anyway, so I've gone on too long. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.